we continue our study through the Gospel of John, chapter 20, page 1075. I don't know about you, but I'm still uh, just kind of savoring and basking in last Sunday and just the glory of it, the joy of it, of um, Christ's resurrection. I, I just felt like God blessed us with joy and, and with a focus on His presence and on His resurrection and that His uh, his glory was um, here. It, it was great. And it was so great to have so many guests with us. Our ushers tell us there were almost 1,200 people here. And, you know, what a great chance to have that many people come as guests and to kind of all focus them together on Jesus and to think about Christ and, and what he means for us. And I just want to commend you as a church, just commend you for your warmth and your hospitality I felt like, you know, you really leaned into that, and, and uh, it, it was cool to, to be that warm. Um, it, you know, we kind of took the old New England stereotype of cold, standoffish New England and sort of blew it away, so that was cool. Um, uh, we could probably get here, uh, get a mic up here, and just tell stories of things God was doing in your families, among your friends. Uh, we, we did that, actually did that on Tuesday. We canceled our normal staff meeting when our church staff meets, and rather than do our usual rigmarole on a staff meeting, we let's just get some cake, let's get coffee. We sat around and ate, and for about an hour, I said, just tell me stories. I just want to hear what God was doing here and different stories from people's lives. It was really encouraging. Um, I'll just tell you one of those, one of the people on our staff, she uh, had planned to have eight people over for Easter, dinner after Easter, and... Uh, but then she was convicted, you know, oh, we should be welcoming people. This is Easter. We're trying to reach out for Easter. So she invited a few more people, invited a few more people. Eventually got up to 14 people on, uh, on Easter morning. And then she came to church on Easter and, I need to be inviting people. I need to be welcoming people. So she'd meet people for the first time. And she'd be like, oh, so you're new to the church? Yeah, you know, where are you going for Easter dinner? Oh, we don't really have plans. We're kind of new to the area. <sighs> Come to my house. And so... By the time Easter actually happened, apparently there were 20 people. So uh, I was like, that was so cool. And, and I think that kind of spirit was just here. So I just want to commend you as a church for, for having a hospitable spirit. You know, hospitality is a basic gospel virtue. Because Christ has welcomed us in to, the, to God's family. You know, it's a basic biblical virtue is hospitality. And, and God has welcomed us into his home. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us in the Father's home. And, and so it's, it's kind of a basic gospel kind of thing to welcome people into your homes, into your lives, to welcome people into our church, and to let people experience the same welcome that Christ has extended to us. But I have some news for you. Easter is not over. I mean, the holiday's over, the uh, you know, the thing we did last Sunday, celebration is over. You know, the, the dressing up in pretty dresses and me wearing my pretty dress and the, uh, you know, the ham and all that, and the rabbit and the eggs, all that stuff. That's, that's over. The, the celebration is over that we do on Easter. But Easter itself has not ended. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and everything that results from that is still very much on it is still going because Christ is still risen. He's still Lord. We still celebrate his resurrection. We're, we're still living in the, the consequences of the resurrection. So in some ways, the story of Easter that we celebrated last week 
in some ways, is kind of the end of a story. It's the, the gripping climax of Jesus' life and ministry. But as we know, it's also in many ways the beginning of a story. It's the beginning of what God is doing in the world now. So I see the death and resurrection of Jesus as kind of a hinge that we turn from one chapter of God's work, His work in the Old Covenant, to His work in the New Covenant in Christ. And so we find ourselves as Christians today not just kind of looking back at a historical event and saying, wow, that was cool, but we're still part of that ongoing story. We find ourselves located in the continuing effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, the, the earthquake that shook the stone and rolled it away is still sending powerful aftershocks into the, up to the present day that in some ways are increasing with power rather than decreasing as the risen Jesus continues to work for His glory in this world and as we continue to experience that. So I've entitled today's sermon, Easter's Aftershocks, as that's where we live, in the aftershocks. And as we look at John chapter 20, verses 19 to the end of the book, so we'll be done with John in about a month here. But after the resurrection of John, what you have is a series of resurrection appearances where Jesus appears to certain groups. And, and so in some ways, like I said, it's kind of the end of the story. But as we're going to see in each of these post-resurrection appearances, there's also an, an orientation toward the continuation of the story in which we live today. And so I want to look at one of these post-resurrection appearances with you, verses 19 to 23. And look at what Easter means for us today as we continue to live in the results of it. So let me read verses 19 to 23. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. As we look at this text, I I see at least two aftershocks of the resurrection. Two things that come as a result of Jesus' victory over the tomb that continue for us today. Two realities in which we as Christians continue to live. And one of them, the first one is the reality of peace. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have peace. Look back at the story. It says in verse 19, it was the evening of the first day of the week. The disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. So I don't know, what, what were you doing last week, last Sunday in the evening? I was trying to not fall asleep because of all the ham in my stomach. You know, we, we're all maybe with family or we're relaxing, maybe watching some TV or a movie. The disciples on the first Easter evening were locked in a room. They were terrified. They were in fear because of uh, what had just happened to Jesus. It says they were locked in there because of fear of the Jews. And when it says fear of the Jews, that specifically means they were afraid of the Jewish authorities 
who had killed Jesus. I mean, obviously, they were Jews themselves, so they weren't afraid of Jewish people. They were afraid of the Jewish authorities who had crucified Christ, and they were right there with him, where they were with the inner circle. Maybe their fear was heightened because of this report that the body was not in the tomb, and Mary said she had seen Jesus, and they're like, okay, that doesn't make any sense, whatever. So the body's gone. We don't know where it is, and they're, they're in a panic mode too. Maybe there's some hijinks going on. Maybe they're really trying to snuff us out, and so these, uh, these guys are locked inside of a room. They're terrified, and suddenly... Verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them. The door was locked. Jesus appears. How'd that happen? I love that. I don't know. It just just teases my imagination. What what happened? But this is what John is saying about Jesus, that he just kind of appears. You know, he was in the grave clothes. He was wrapped up in the linen. And then he was not in the linen. And the linen was still there. You know, he... He just kind of passed through it, and now he passes through into the locked room. You go, what is this? I mean, I I really don't have an answer for you, except that we know that the Bible promises that someday God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a new creation. And we know that Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits of that new creation. It's the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. So, Apparently, there's some different laws in this new creation. I don't know. But, but it, it just kind of tantalizes the imagination. But whatever, there he is. He comes, he stands among them, and what does he say? Peace to you. Or as it's translated here, peace be with you. What does that mean, peace? Why does he say peace? He says it again in verse 21. So twice in this passage, peace. Peace to you. I think it's one of those loaded phrases. You know, sometimes words can be simple, or if you really think about them, they can have a lot of meaning. You know, peace to you is kind of a loaded phrase. I mean, at one level, it's just a simple greeting. It's the Jewish greeting. Shalom, right? Shalom, peace. Peace. What's up? You know? Hey, it's it's just hello at one level. Uh, You know, it's... uh, in, in, Arab, in Arabic, it's uh, salam, right? Assalamu salam alaikum. You know, greetings to you. It's, it's just a common greeting. But you could kind of look at it at a deeper level and say, I think Jesus is saying something more than just peace. He's saying, peace. Be still. Don't be afraid. Stop panicking. I mean, these guys were in a state of terror. They're locked in this room. And they're worried, where's Jesus? And then suddenly he's standing there. I mean, who knows what happened when Jesus suddenly appeared in that room? I wish we had the webcam to see the faces and to see the, ah, you, know, ah, you know, are we all freaking, are we all hallucinating at once? Like, what, what is this? And how did he get in here? And so he has to say, peace. It shows them that he's real. He shows them his hands and his side and, and they go from freaking out to overjoyed, from terror to happiness. This is the kind of peace that Jesus promised to give them. You know, if you look back at chapter 14, turn back to chapter 14 in John, verse 27, He promised to give us peace. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you. Chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. 
I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Don't be in panic. Don't be afraid. I give you my peace. And now he comes back from the dead and he's saying, peace. Be at peace, people. I've overcome the world. You know, they're, they're so terrified because like, they could die. That The authorities could do to them what they did to Jesus. They're so afraid of, of the forces out there that are hostile and that are threatening them. And here's Jesus. He took the worst that the world could give him. He took it all and he conquered and he's alive. And he's saying, peace. I've overcome the world. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. And I just, you know, I like to pause and just say to you, those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, peace. You know, what, what are we afraid of, really, in the grand scheme of things? Our Savior has overcome the world. He's conquered. We're in Him. I suspect if you're like me, there's some of you here who uh, have been up some nights this week. Maybe you were up last night, two in the morning, three in the morning, worrying, concerned about things. You know, we do this. We, we wake up, we're worried about our kids or we're worried about our relationships or we're, we're have anxiety about health issues that we're facing or, or we, we're worried and in fear because of finances or jobs, or you know what, what we got to go to on Monday when we walk back into the workplace and there's a, just a negative environment there, or the fact that we aren't walking into any job on Monday. And you know it's just so easy to become stressed out about these things and to live in fear. And Jesus, our Lord, says peace to us. And so there's a sense in which as a Christian, we, we have a kind of peace that the world can't touch. You know, Jesus says he gives peace in chapter 14, but not as the world gives. You know, the world gives peace, but it has lots of strings attached. It's always based on conditions. The world's like, you, you can have peace. But the key is you need to go to the beach in, in the Bahamas and sit on the beach with a drink with an umbrella. Then you'll have peace. Or, yeah, you can have peace, but you really need to hit the Powerball. If you hit the Powerball, you would have peace because you'd have enough money. And then you could have peace because then you wouldn't have to worry about money. Or, you know, you can have peace if... You know, if, if you had a different relationship in your life, or if you, you know, if you had this or you had that, then you'd be happy. Then you'd have peace. That's how the world gives peace. But the peace that Jesus gives to us as his disciples, it's very different. It's very not based on circumstances. It's, it's more like the, the eye of the hurricane. Circumstances can be completely out of control. It can be completely you know, threatening and wild and making no sense. But we find a, an eye in the center of that hurricane where we know that the Lord is with us, that he's, he's overcome. And so there's peace in the Lord that we find. And it's a, it's a really strange thing as a Christian to be going through difficult circumstances, to be wrestling with anxiety and worry and fear, and yet to have a deep down peace underneath it. The peace that passes understanding. And it's because ultimately, my life is in Him. My life is not in this world. I'm not looking to this world for my ultimate identity and my life and my hope and my future. My life is in Christ. And so this world, this world can't touch that. My life is in Christ. But I wonder if there's even a deeper meaning to peace. So go back now to John 20. He says, peace. At one level, it's just a greeting. Shalom. 
At another level, he's calming their hearts with his presence. He's the resurrected Lord who's overcome the world. But I wonder if there's even a deeper pronouncement here that he's really also reminding them that they are in a state of peace with God himself. Because of his resurrection, because of his burial, his death, burial, and resurrection, they're now at peace with God. Again, look at verse 21. Isn't it interesting? He is, again says, peace to you. Why does he say it a second time? Didn't he allay their fears? So they're afraid, and then he says, peace. And then they're happy, so they should be okay now. Did, didn't he fix the problem of upset emotions? But again, peace to you. It's ultimately, I I wonder if this is a pronouncement of peace, that that, that the work of salvation has been done. Look at his hands. Look at his side. The price for peace with God has been paid. You know, God originally created us, and he's our maker, and he put our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And when God first created humanity, everything was in a state of shalom. It was peace, there was wholeness, there was shalom between Adam and Eve and their relationship, there was shalom between humanity and the the creation and the environment around them, there was shalom between them and God. But you know the the story in the garden is that the peace was broken, that uh, our first parents, instead of living in that peace under God, they staged a rebellion, they staged a coup d'etat, they They became insurgents against the divine rule. They said, you know, we're going to be God. We're going to decide good and evil for ourselves. And and it plunged them into a state of hostility toward God. And it broke the shalom of the garden. And so now we live in a world that is marked by an absence of shalom, an absence of peace, an absence of unity and cohesion. It's a broken world, broken by sin. And so we live in this state of hostility toward God and and enmity toward God. And you say, I'm not God's enemy. I'm not hostile toward God. I'm not even sure I believe in God. What could be more hostile than to say, I don't believe you exist? You know? You say, well, it's it's just my own spirituality. It's my own thing. Well, that's hostility because you're saying, no, 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 God, I'm going to do it my way. It's just the same thing as the Garden of Eden. And so we're in a state of hostility against God, his rights, his authority. And here's the thing, this is a little hard to hear, but but I just have to tell you the truth. We're not only enemies toward God, but God is an enemy toward us. We've gone to war against God, and God is at war against us. Not because he's mean, but because he's holy. He is a holy God. He's holy, holy, holy. He hates sin. And for the sake of His glory and the sake of His name, He has to judge and punish sin. And and without Christ, you and I are at odds with God. There's not peace. Without Jesus Christ, if, if you go to your grave without Christ, you go to your grave at war with God. And you go to a Christless eternity of judgment. Hell is real. But the amazing story of the Bible is that God decided to make peace with us even when we were not looking to make peace with Him. 
that God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty for our rebellion so that as He's showing them His hands and His side, He's showing them proof that the payment for sin has been rendered, that, that peace has been made through His sacrifice on the cross. It's proof, and they see it, and there's peace now between us and God. Um, in, uh, in the study of foreign missions, um, if you ever get into studying world missions and the history of missions, there's a famous story, a famous book. It was put out by a missionary uh, named Don Richardson. Uh, it's, great, it's easy read. You'd love it. Just pick it up, even though I'm basically going to tell you the plot right now. Still, you should read it. But uh, this missionary's name is Don Richardson, and in the ni- mid-20th century, he went to Papua New Guinea with his wife to... Uh, a people group called the Sawi people, and uh, this book's called Peace Child. And so he, he went among the Sawi people, and he wanted to learn their language and tell them about Christ. And, and this people group was very literally a kind of primitive sort of Stone Age people group. They, they were literally headhunters and cannibals. You know, like you, you think, oh, yeah, you know, the cannibals, were, but they actually were. That's, they did that. And so there was lots of warfare and very martial people always at war with each other. And, um, and so he came there, and, and he had, you know, he had to learn a very complex languages, language. He had to um, not get killed. He had to uh, not die from tropical diseases that he wasn't used to. And, and it, another challenge is, as he was trying to share Christ with them, is that they had just had very different value systems. So in, in their culture, a person is honored if they're tri- uh, tricky and they outsmart their enemies. So as he was trying to tell them the story of Jesus, and he gets to the part where Judas betrays Jesus, they all looked at Judas as the hero and Jesus as the tool who got tricked. And so they thought, oh, Judas, yeah, he's, okay. So you heard him tell us about Judas. Like, no, about Jesus. Jesus, he got fooled. You know, so, it, you know, it's very hard. And so he's like, oh, how do I reach these people? He's really beating his head against the wall. And uh, I, eventually at some point there was a war that kind of escalated between some of the, the tribes within the Sawi people. And it became uh, a place where he and his wife thought they needed to leave because it was becoming too dangerous. Um, and, but the people didn't want him to leave so, so they made a peace treaty among themselves. And here's what they did. They, they got together, and one of the tribal leaders took his son, and this is part of their, their tribal ritual, and he gave his son to be part of the family of the enemy tribal leader. And it was a, it was a ritual known as the peace child. And, and so now the idea was, I could never be your enemy if I've given you my son. And you have my son. And Richardson was like. <laughs> and so he, he said. That's what God did. You're at war with God. And he's given you his son. To make peace. And suddenly the Sawi people. <gasps> they got the gospel. In their own, in their own way. And, and many of them started coming to Jesus. Not in a western American way. But in a Sawi way. One of the things I love about the gospel is that it it comes to life in every culture in a different way. You know, I think sometimes we think of the gospel and Christianity as a Western thing. It's not. It's a heavenly thing that finds expression in all kinds of different ways in all kinds of different cultures. But now in Christ, there's peace so that you and I can have peace with God through Jesus Christ.
you know, I, I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't know what's stressing you out. We all have our, our difficult things in life. But like, step back, man, and think about it. You're at peace with God. Like, whatever you think you're facing this week, it's like nothing compared to the problem of hell. And God has made peace with us, and he's forgiven us. And so, yeah, life, I'm not trying to say life just gets rosy as a Christian. You still go through stuff. But underneath it, there's this, this sigh of relief within our souls that continues to give us peace even in this world because we know we have peace with God. And can I just make one other point before I, I'll just do the other thing quickly, the, the other aftershock of Easter. But can I just say one more thing about this peace? Because we have peace with God, we also, as followers of Christ, have peace with one another. Look what he says, going back to John chapter 20. Peace to you. And that you is plural. Peace to you. Jesus is speaking to the the messianic community. He's speaking to the new Israel, to the new humanity. The, The new community of faith that's being gathered around him. There it is. It's like a little seed that's going to grow into the church And and he's speaking to this new community and he says, peace to you. That there should be peace among us as Christians. God's plan for world peace, which is coming someday at the return of Christ, is kind of foreshadowed in the peace that we have among, or should have among each other as Christians. And so the way it's supposed to work is, is that people are supposed to look into the church and they're supposed to see a peace that does not exist in the world. The people are supposed to look into the church and they're supposed to see rich people and poor people who normally look at each other skeptically together as a family. People are supposed to look into the church and see uh, you know, gun control people and Second Amendment people at peace with each other in the church. People are supposed to look into the church and see you know, pink people and brown people and every skin color in between, and different ethnicities and different languages all together in the same place. And say, what? how are you all getting along? I'm supposed to see old people who don't really understand these young people today, and people, young people don't appreciate the old people and what they know, and then young people who just think, why don't the old people, why don't they lighten up? And, you know, they, they, should, they should be friends. And, and you look in the church, and they're getting along. That's what they're supposed to see. Because we have a peace that's deeper than all of those worldly things that would normally push us apart. Our identity is deeper than our age or our ethnicity or our politics or or whatever. Our identity is in Christ. That at the deepest level, I am in Christ. And if you are in Christ, we are one. We are one. And the world is supposed to look into the church and see that and say, wow, what is that? What is this peace that we have? And so, brothers and sisters, can I just strongly urge you, before going to the other point here quickly, but just strongly urge you to work for peace in this fellowship, that if there's any of this going on in our church in any way, you've got to fight for peace. You need to work to overcome that, to, 
to love each other, to forgive each other, whether it's in marriages or between friends or two people in a Bible study that are having a falling out. You know, and I'm not speaking to any specific situation. I'm just saying we need to stay unified as a body for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our witness to the world that the Prince of Peace has come and that we're learning how to live in peace together. I believe, you guys may disagree with me, but I believe it is possible for any two Christians, no matter how at odds they are with each other, no matter how opposed they are to each other, no matter how bad the marriage is or how bad the friendship is, I believe any two Christians can be reconciled if they're both willing (laughs) to totally humble themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and experience that peace. Here's the fact. Someday we will be in heaven And we will be reconciled. Because at that point, our hearts will be totally ready and everything will be known. But I think we can even experience that reconciliation here if both parties are willing to totally lay it down and humble themselves before the Lord. It takes two, of course. But it takes the Lord. Okay, quickly, let me show you just the second thing that we are given as a result of Easter. And I'll just address this briefly. But the first is peace. And as a result of Easter, we also have a new purpose. Look at verse 21 of John chapter 20. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. So we have peace, but there's also a purpose. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So as a result of the resurrection, we've received a commission to go out. We're sent by the Father, by the Son. Just as the Father has sent the Son, so now the Son hands the baton to us. He taps us on the shoulder, and He says, now son, the Son sends the, the disciples into the world. And w- what is our mission? What, is, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to testify about Christ. Go back to chapter 17. So we not only have peace, we have a purpose, which is to testify about Jesus. That's an aftershock of the resurrection. Look at chapter 17, verse 18. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, he's praying to the Father, I have sent them into the world. So same language. What are they doing in the world? Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Ah, So the disciples are going into the world to proclaim a message, just as the Son came into the world to proclaim a message. Now the disciples are going in the world to continue that message so that others may believe and then become those who carry the message. And what is the message? It's the message about Jesus. Jesus came into the world saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus came into the world saying, I am the bread of life. He came to the world saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. Believe in me and you'll have eternal life. And so now we go into the world and what are we saying? We're saying, he is the resurrection and the life. He is the good shepherd. He is the bread of life. Believe in him and you'll have eternal life. He died and rose again. So we're just pointing people back to Jesus himself. We're carrying on that message into the world. We're all called to do that. You know, we can all do that. You don't have to wait till you've been a Christian for 10 years before you start on the mission. You don't have to wait until you get some, you know, 10 Bible studies under your belt or a seminary or Bible degree 
No, no, no. If, even if you're a baby, little baby Christian, like newborn baby Christian, just learning this stuff, and all you can say is, Jesus. Like, just say that, okay? Just say what you know. Say what God has given you. It starts now. You come, become a follower of Jesus, and you're automatically pushed out into the mission of speaking about him and what he's done in your life. Even if you just know a little bit, speak it. Because God will use it. Go back to John chapter 20, verse 22. God is going to use it by the power of his Holy Spirit. It says in verse 22, And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a weird verse. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And you're trying to, again, I wish I had the webcam there. Was he, did he just kind of take a deep breath and let it out? Did he go around to each of them and like, ha, 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 you know, like what? I, I don't know. I mean, I just, maybe I shouldn't ask those kind of questions, but I just wonder, like, what, what did that mean? And were they actually getting the Holy Spirit then? I thought the Holy Spirit came 50 days later at the day of Pentecost. So like, what is that? And, and didn't Jesus say, you're not going to get the Spirit until I go back to the Father, but he hasn't gone back yet. So what's he doing? It's just a, kind of a strange verse. What I think it is, this is how I interpret it anyway, and different people interpret it different ways. What I see it is as a symbolic action signaling what's about to happen. So it's kind of like when he washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, and it was a symbol of the cleansing they were going to receive through his humble sacrifice on the cross. I think this exhalation of Jesus is, is a symbolic action showing them that they're about to receive the Holy Spirit. But again, the real question is, why do we need the Holy Spirit? It's because of this mission to go testify about Jesus. Again, go back to John chapter 15. So cool how there's so many themes from the Last Supper reappearing here. Look at John chapter 15, verse 26. When the Counselor comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father... The Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. Here's what the Spirit will do. He will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And we also are included those who testify about the testimony of the apostles who are testifying about Jesus. But, but we go out and we speak. So, so we testify and the Spirit testifies. We speak about Jesus and the Spirit speaks about Jesus which is really encouraging to me because I really don't think I'm persuasive enough to convince people about Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm so glad I got the Holy Spirit testifying too. I can tell people about Jesus, but you know, it goes in one ear and it comes out the other and people are, you know, like me. You're like me. I, I'm thinking about things I got to do today or, or you say something the wrong way or you just have a different personality it's like, how am I going to convince people about Jesus? I just can't do it. I need the Holy Spirit. And, you know, thinking about convincing people about Jesus in New England, that's kind of daunting. It's a tough place to talk about Jesus. People have all this armor on in New England. There's like the, the intellectual armor, like we're smart because we're in New England. Other people in other parts of the country, they're kind of bumpkins and hayseeds. But Harvard's right over there. Therefore, I'm smart because there's Harvard. There's a lot of colleges. That makes me smart. 
So, you know, we're smart, and we don't need the Bible, we don't need Jesus. And then, then there's another layer over that, which is kind of secularism. And then there's another layer over that, which is sort of nominal Christianity. Like most New Englanders have had just enough church to know they don't want anything else to do with it. And, and then over it all is, is the kind of New England self-reliance. If I had to summarize the kind of New England mindset in three words, it, it's this. I'm all set. Right? That's New England. I'm all set. I'm good. It's that self-reliance. I'm all, you, you need help? I'm all set. You know? I mean, it's weird. Like, as a pastor, you know, people go in the hospital and they have, like, heart transplants and things, and then you find out about it two months later. Like, you're in the hospital? Yeah, I'm all set. I'm good. Okay. It's just... And, you know, there's something admirable about it because, you know, self-reliance. I'm that way, too. I've found, even though I'm a Westerner, I fit in in New England because I tend to be a self-reliant kind of person. So at one level, that's it's admirable. Self-reliance is, is an admirable quality at some level. But another level, it's dangerous when it comes to spiritual things. I'm all set. No, you're not. <laughs> you need a Savior. I'm good. I'm fine. You're not. So, like, how do you... Communicate the need for Christ when everyone's all set with everything. I can't do it. But the Holy Spirit can do it. The Holy Spirit can penetrate the armor. Jesus can materialize inside the locked room. He can get inside the armor that I can't get into through my logic and reason and all my tricks. I just need to talk about Him and trust that He'll be materializing in the heart through the Holy Spirit, that He'll be revealing Himself to people in ways that my persuasiveness or apologetics or arguments cannot do. So I'm so glad we have the Holy Spirit. And oh, we need more of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for God to do more with His Holy Spirit on the South Shore. We're such a dry area. These are desperate times. We've got to stop fooling around. The situation in New England is spiritually desperate. It can't get much worse. I should never say that. (laughs) It's really bad. And at this point, we need to stop diddling around with religion. And we need to pray for a great visitation of the Holy Spirit in New England as has happened in centuries past. We need to plead with God for it. You know, good advertising and, you know, funny pastors and good music, it's not enough anymore. We need the Holy Spirit to come with power in this area. We need to pray for it. We need to ask God to... We need to ask Jesus to take a really deep breath And do a really big exhale on this region. Because I think anything short of that, because of the desperate nature of the the status of the gospel in New England, it's going to take something like that. And so I would just ask you, as you pray for me, sometimes people tell me they pray for me. I so appreciate that. As you pray for me, would you pray that God would give me power to preach in the Holy Spirit? You know, I need power. Not the power of a, the rhetoric of a well-crafted sermon. Not the power of my personality. Like, I need 
to be clothed with power from on high to be able to preach this gospel so that it affects hearts. And if you'll pray for me, I'll make you a deal. I'll pray for you for the same thing. That as you go out and you talk to people and as you use your faltering words and I use my faltering words, that God will send his power and visit New England again with a mighty move of his Holy Spirit. We need to pray for revival. And it comes in power. Okay, I have like one minute left, so let me just hit verse 23, which is the hardest verse in the whole thing. But look at the time. (laughs) Verse 23, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Ooh, wow. So is, is Jesus saying that the apostles are the ones who actually save people? Or is he saying we, if we apply this to ourselves, are Christians able to grant forgiveness or withhold forgiveness? Is this the beginning of apostolic succession and the idea that the, the pope or the priest can absolve sins in the confessional? Like, what, what is this? And like I said, we don't have much time, but let me just say, uh, you know, when you, I, I'm not fully sure I totally understand everything this verse entails, but, you know, whenever you come to a difficult verse, you always have to step back and say, what's the context? Always interpret Scripture in its context. Don't pick things out of context. And in this context, what are we talking about? We're talking about the mission of preaching the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think the idea at least includes the fact that as we proclaim Christ to people and as the apostles proclaim Christ, they can say with confidence to people who confess Christ, you are forgiven. And they can say with confidence to people who deny Christ and reject Christ, you're still in your sins. And you have no hope of salvation apart from Him. And that's a very, like, who wants to, that's really a confident thing to say, isn't it? But Jesus says you're authorized because the gospel gives you the authority to tell people that sins are forgiven when they confess Christ or sins are not forgiven. Because remember, it's all about this message and this mission. That's so encouraging. You know what that means? That means right now, right now, you can be forgiven. Because through the gospel, you can come to faith in Christ right now. There's no waiting period. There's no paperwork. There's no online forms. There's no multiple-step penance program to work off your sin. It's not like the 12-step program where you have to reach certain steps, and if, God, if you get far enough in the steps, then God will forgive you. You can be forgiven right now, completely, totally. You can go from enmity with God to peace with God. You, you can be welcomed into God's family in a moment, completely, totally, through faith in Jesus. In the moment right now. Isn't that awesome? So I'm not exactly sure what that verse means, but I know what it holds out as a promise, that there's forgiveness possible. You say, well, not me. I mean, if you knew me and my life and this and that. No. Again, 
There's peace with God through Christ for everyone who believes in him. All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the peace we have in you. I thank you that you're our Savior. Thank you that there's peace in our hearts. Lord, I pray for everyone here whose heart is trembling and quailing because of life, that you would grant them your peace and that they'd be able to rest in you and to know the peace that the world cannot give but that you give. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to savor the peace we have with God. Help us to stand in awe of the great salvation you've worked for us. Help us to look at our lives in the eternal scope and realize how much we should be praising you for what you've done. God, I also pray that you would give us boldness to go out and speak about you, that you'd make us a a more courageous church, that we would trust in the power of the Holy Spirit in his time to penetrate hearts and to, to reveal you. Lord, we pray for more of your Spirit's work. We pray for a mighty visitation of the Holy Spirit in this region. Father, we cannot make that happen. There's no special ritual we do. You just have to do it. It's like a nor'easter, Lord. It just has to come. So God, we pray for a great nor'easter of the Spirit's power and blessing on New England. One that could be spoken of for years like the blizzard of 78. That we would all look back and remember the time when God, when God shook the heavens and came down. Lord, you've done it before right here in Boston in centuries past. We pray that you might do that again. In Jesus' name, amen.